0: Be
1: continued at scs.georgetown.edu/podcast
2: The lessons learned from our work in other countries one is that you have to develop technologies that can be widely used by uh, diverse communities people with a wide range of experience with the uh, devices a wide range of education and and also a wide range of health uh, disparities and barriers to medication adherence
3: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. That quote was from Dr. Bob Bollinger, the Raj and Kamala Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Why is Bob on today's show? Well, it's another COVID explainer because the world is still burning, and does anyone really have any answers? Well, it turns out that actual experts have the credibility to proffer up actual wisdom unlike unnamed individuals who may think that injecting bleach into your body is sound medical advice. I'm digressing. Bob has over 40 years of experience dealing with, I don't know, HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, just to name three really terrible things. He's also the co-founder of of what I find to be a very interesting mobile health platform called Emoca, which focuses on improving compliance and adherence for clinical trials around the world. Joining Bob is his co-founder, Sebastian Sager, who is the chief executive officer of Emoca. Lots of questions, lots of answers, but most importantly, this was a great conversation with some insanely smart people trying to make the bad stuff in this world suck a lot less. Enjoy the show. Hemoglobulin? I can't even say that word. Anyway, so we're gonna get we're gonna break down how do you pronounce hemoglobin? Uh, we
1: can we can work on that one. <laughs> work on that pronunciation.
3: I'm a work in progress, I'll tell you. Bob and S- and Sebastian, I'm very excited to have you here on the pod because you're bringing to the conversation expertise in three specific areas that have intrigued me. For many years as a cancer advocate and somebody running a nonprofit organization, the first being telehealth, telemedicine, the second being compliance and adherence to medications and what those outcomes look like based on the factors that go into compliance and adherence, and COVID and immunology and uh, uh, infectious disease, fascinating conversations that are slightly more prescient these days than perhaps other days out there, sexy words that make no sense to the average person, but I'd like to start with your backgrounds, because you can't just be the head of infectious disease at Hopkins without doing a couple of really good, smart things for a long time. So, Bob, how'd you get into this?
1: Well, well, thanks. First of all, just to clarify, I'm not the head of infectious disease at Hopkins. I've been a professor at Hopkins and in infectious diseases for 30
3: years. I gave you promotion. <laughs>
1: yeah. I appreciate that. I started off my career um, in infectious diseases, uh, interested in global health, um, although I still do clinical work at Hopkins as well. I spent most of my career um, involved in uh, collaborations with colleagues in India as well as in Africa, uh, focused primarily on HIV, tuberculosis, and other infectious diseases. And um, um, I had an opportunity to meet Sebastian uh, back in 2013 or so. Um, after working on this mobile health platform in, um, uh, to support a project we were developing in Uganda uh, for HIV patients, uh, so that's how I got involved in, in my career initially, and then how I got involved with uh, with mobile health and with Emoca. Uh,
3: so let's let's dig into that a little bit because obviously things don't happen the same in every country, and there are many variables that play into how do you come into that culture and figure out the right ways to work with those individual communities. What have you found to be the most relevant discovery in going into other countries to look at infectious disease and telehealth or uh, disease management?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the things we we discovered and sort of um, has guided us from the beginning is, is that um, the needs uh, for health are primarily focused in those uh, communities and, and populations that... Um, have the greatest disparities whether they be economic or social or health disparities and that's certainly true uh in our experience in other countries as well as here in the united states and so when we worked on um, developing emoca initially we were focused on a very rural community in in the southern uh southwestern uganda um uh which was uh, you know, uh, a difficult place to work, but we were able to develop strategies and platforms and solutions leveraging mobile health technology that could help improve the care of patients there. And then we uh, took those lessons learned um, uh, back to the United States, back to Baltimore, and um, and it's really helped to to launch uh, what what Emoke has uh, been able to do and what Sebastian and his team has been able to do here in the United States for um, for people that are. Uh, having difficulty with adherence uh, to medications, as well as to uh, people facing the COVID uh, pandemic at the moment. Again, um, uh, like most health issues, disproportionately affecting uh, uh, people that are facing uh, disparities in health uh, and economics.
3: So going to Sebastian on the, the emergence of EMOCA. Was it difficult to apply, or are you still in the mix of figuring out how do you apply the learnings, the best practices, the alchemist measurements that worked in other countries or worked in quotes in other countries to this country's very unique, very different health system?
0: Well, yes. I mean, in other countries, public health is health, right? Because, right. Because, um, you know, you don't have as much of a separation like we do here between the what's considered the public health Uses versus the commercial uses. So, in other countries, and in, and in perhaps in Uganda or in India, in a lot of cases, the infectious diseases are of primary concern, whereas in the United States, um, they're 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 not considered as as high a priority. Sometimes, right? So th- this varies, and it depends on whether you have a, a situation like COVID. Um, so so really, there are very different systems.
3: So what what have you applied in the U.S. that is unique because reaching different groups, communities of color, disparity groups, people that are already immunocompromised, what does it look like on the ground now with frontline responders and HCPs and nurses and doctors' health systems? How are they applying to everyday, I, I would almost say, like triage?
0: Right. So, uh, you know, there's there are a lot of different uses for Emoca. We can start with a couple major um major product qualities that we have that are really relevant today. So first things first, because this this technology was developed abroad in a very rural setting, EMOCA works almost anywhere. Um, We can capture data almost anywhere and we've tailored the user interface for people who um, might have difficulties with technology, might speak a different language um, and their usage is supposed to be rapid and easy. So in the same way, with the pandemic moving very quickly, um, we distribute, we've distribute. we distributed the, the technology to tens of thousands of people who have no problem using it, regardless of their background, um, because uh, it is very simple and easy to use. It's meant to be distributed quickly and easily, um, and meant to, to operate anywhere. Um, so that's that's one use. But note that there are two major, let's say, product Um, tracks for EMOCA. One is um, when you already know that somebody has uh, an issue, a a disease, making sure they take their medication. That's our video directly observed therapy platform. And since the Ebola days in 2015, um, we have a a software which is tailored to people who might have disease, who you have to monitor um, their symptoms to make sure that they don't have a, a, a very infectious disease. So, we've we've deployed the COVID, uh, for COVID, we've deployed that, you could call it like almost a surveillance um, application.
3: So in terms of the actual tech itself, is it an app? Is it a web app? Is it a proprietary link somewhere? And my second question is, most of these countries now, can you comment, outside the US, do they have an internet infrastructure that they just didn't have even 10 years ago for this to work? So
0: Emocha is a mobile application. It's a downloadable app. Um, you know, for for medication adherence, we take a video of, of the patient taking their medication at every single dose. That's uh, that's called directly observed therapy. We've proven comparability to the actual in person process. Um, now, do do developing economies um, have the infrastructure needed? Well, um, smartphone penetration in the in in developing countries is actually very high, and more people will have a, a smartphone than they will a laptop, let's say. So yes, they rely on cellular networks to do, to, you know, to facilitate communication. There will be areas of the country which are rural and and you know not as well connected, but um, but in a lot of ways, many of these economies in terms of smartphone usage are are quite well developed. Bob,
1: do you have comments on that? Uh, no, I would only add, uh, like I said before, the the original version of EMOK was developed in a very challenging environment, and we designed it to be flexible and be able to work in in places that had uh, all sorts of uh, uh, variability and, and connectivity, uh, so that was really one of the intents.
3: Yeah, I, I look at the elasticity, how can this be applicable across multiple user experiences and multiple disease states and multiple cultures? It sounds like you did take that into consideration, but in terms of real-world application, what are you finding that users are looking for? What are you hearing from users that can be fed into the data to apply an outcome or an influence or decision?
0: So it really depends on the use case that you're talking about here. So let's talk about medication adherence. Um, In medication adherence, we care that the patient takes their medication, obviously, keeping it simple, and we want to verify that at every single dose. But on the other hand, there, are, as you yourself uh, are, are expert in, in compliance and adherence, there are many reasons why a patient might not take their medication. And what we want to discover is why. The most tricky of those issues are medication problems. So sometimes patients don't take their medication because the dose isn't correct for them or they don't know how to use a a particular, let's say a device, for example, an asthma inhaler. So what we can learn by very, very frequent contact with a patient is the root causes of their non-adherence and how to solve it so that they can be successful with medication. With COVID, uh, I'll let Dr. Bollinger tell you about the the smoke alarm um, and how you use a smoke alarm versus how you use a smoke detector.
1: Well, so for uh, the the COVID use case, uh, you know, one of the things that it's been used for is to help health workers who might have been exposed uh, to self-monitor for symptoms of COVID on a daily basis and in a very convenient way. And um, and as uh, Sebastian said, the analogy I use is a smoke detector. So if if someone who is potentially exposed to COVID has a symptom, uh, you want to be able to detect um, that symptom as quickly as possible so that that data can then lead to, to actions that matter. So a good example is, um, you know, if, if a healthcare worker develops a symptom, one of the most important things is to get that health worker access, if it's appropriate, to testing. So um, by providing, you know, health workers and others an opportunity to, to self-report and monitor their symptoms, it, it helps to facilitate their access to appropriate care. Um, and it also helps to facilitate um, access to support from perhaps the public health department if contact tracing is necessary, uh, for example. Um, So it's it's all about collecting data that leads to to good action, right? It's not just about collecting the data, but you want those data to to lead to um, action that can help support uh, the person that's doing the monitoring. That's really the, the critical component of it.
3: So I want to go back to the compliance issue, because that was really, I I won't say a bone of my contention, because you really have to deal with multiple generations and the way they're purchased. And we were U.S.-focused, and we focused on largely Gen Xers and Millennials and even Gen Zers, and we found that in leukemia, compliance was lowest in teenagers, and that seemed to make a lot of sense, because teenagers... Just kind of want to be teenagers, but there was a almost a gamification product called Remission. It was like a CD-ROM. Remember CD-ROMs? Was a CD-ROM? Then it was a DVD. Then it was like a Flash Player. I'm really dating myself with this tech, but it wound up increasing compliance in teenagers' adherence to their medications when they were home on oral therapy because it gamified the like. If you know the game like Doom, I'm so old. Doom from the the PCs in the 1990s. You were like on a Fantastic Voyage spaceship going through your blood vessels, killing cancer cells. And that increased compliance among teenagers with leukemia. So have you seen evidence that there are disparate ways to reach different communities that need maybe bespoke tweets to encourage them to improve compliance and adherence? So uh, this is Sebastian.
0: Um, you know, if you, if you tried to gamify adherence for a teenager, you'd find that your game is old within a few weeks. And you'd have to have to make a new game. Their attention span is uh, is limited. But um, you know, let's let's talk about with a teenager adhering to making your bed or cleaning their room or wh- whatever other small tasks you want them to do. You have to be all over it. You have to remind them every single day. Um, and and you know, if you gave them a checklist to work with on an app, they may or may not do it. We believe that medication adherence is both a technology uh, it has a technology solution, but it has a human component as well um and that's how directly observed therapy works a human being has a medication appointment with the patient nearly every single day to make sure it's being taken so that's the behavior reinforcement but then to remove any barriers that that, that the patient might be experiencing um and these barriers can be significant when it comes to underserved communities so i would say that um, gamification is great but the barriers you know like the the attention span issues that you have we have a very demanding consumer um in terms of games that you know you might not be able to keep up with in the healthcare setting but there is a solution for teenagers they just need more contact at certain times um in order to get them to do what they're supposed to do
3: spoken like someone who may have a teenager in the house i've got 3 of them <laughs> and, i called it totally called it
0: yeah i think the 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 male brain at that age, um, as Bob has you know informed me many times, is just probably you know at the dinosaur stage of development until you know until the twenties.
3: So you're looking at daily interventions, human daily interventions, to ensure that medications are taken. And here's why: is there like an incentive base to this? I'm, I mean, we can get out of the teenage conversation in general. I'm going to tie that into another narrative that I'm. An armchair expert, which is that in this country, people sometimes can't afford their drugs, so they cut them in half to last the rest of the month till their check comes.
0: Yeah, there's um, as as you may know, the uh, the measure of adherence in the market is the medication possession ratio, which is you know how many how much medication do you have, and uh, does the number of refills cover you for for a certain amount of time, and um, you know to your point, uh, people cutting medication in half, well. Sometimes when they do that, they also get prescribed a double dosage of medication so that by taking half, they're actually taking what they're supposed to do. So therein lies the, um, the, the extreme um, value of a daily intervention to discover these things, because imagine that you have somebody's prescription and it's, let's say, two uh, doses of met, two, two um, let's just say, keeping it simple, two pills of metformin uh, twice daily. Uh, but that prescription in the system is actually a doubled prescription um, to allow the patient to only pay one copay and not have to refill at the end of the month. Well, on the typical uh, measure of adherence, that patient will be 50 percent adherent. But on emoca um, if we know that that's really not what they're supposed to be taking and they're supposed to be taking once at one in the morning, one in the evening, then um, the patient's health will be secure and they will be actually adherent. So it's really tricky, um, and there are a lot of curveballs here.
3: So I'm going to channel Frank Sinatra for a second because if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Has starting in international waters helped pave the way that this is a little more proof positive in the U.S.?
2: The lessons learned from our work in other countries: one is that we have to develop technologies that can be widely used by uh, diverse communities, people with a wide range of experience with the uh, devices, a wide range of education, and and also a wide range of health uh, disparities and barriers to medication adherence. Um, I, I think um, the other thing we've we've learned is that um, uh, I think patients all over the world appreciate. The opportunity to take better care of themselves in their own communities. So this is really trying to leverage, if you will, um, a new um, uh, emphasis on point of care um, in the community. Uh, so in your own homes, and so it's a way to stay connected to the healthcare system in some some new ways, uh, you know, from your home and from your community, from work. Um, because uh, as we you know, as we all know, uh, one of the other barriers that people have to staying engaged in, in good health care is getting access to, to that care and taking time off from work, coming to the clinics, et cetera, which are necessary at times. Uh, but uh, a lot of, I mean, we're certainly seeing some transformational uh, things happening in healthcare care around the world. Now, due to COVID, um, remote monitoring and remote care is going to be even more important. Um, and I think in, in very rural communities in Uganda, um, you know, that's, that's a lot easier on, on people who live in remote villages and have to travel, for example, a long way to, to get facility-based care. So those are some lessons learned, I think, that we can, we can build on and, and optimize uh, how we, we use this um, uh, technology That's in, as Sebastian said, it's not just technology, it's, it's, it's people who are enabled by technology to help support patients who, uh, who need help taking their medications.
3: Back with our guest
2: after the break.
3: Right, and that brings up the conversation of advocacy. I was on the Google Health board 16 years ago when they were just getting started to think that this was something out there long, long, long time ago. And we were discussing how advocacy could play a role because if you're a patient who's made aware of a product that improves your life, you want to become an ambassador to that patient and let other people know that here's a product that helped you and it could make, you know, colloquially, things suck a little less. In the U.S., have you seen adoption rates similar to your success overseas and what has the, what, what have the sort of the user feedback been for you?
2: Well, I'll defer, um, to Sebastian about, uh, you know, uh, providing uh, some insights about, uh, you know, user feedback from the United States. But I think in general, you know, people appreciate the opportunity to feel better connected to their healthcare providers. Uh, and, and the technology can support that. I think, uh, to the extent that's that's achieved, uh, people appreciate the convenience of it as well as the the opportunity to stay connected on a daily basis. Uh, Sebastian, you want to add to that?
0: Yes, I would say that first of all, our user base is right now primarily the United States. I mean, actually, overwhelmingly, United States users. The best quote I have is actually from a healthcare provider in Harris County, Texas. Um, we're we're still communicating. We're still having our daily appointment we're just doing it on a different platform and I'd say that um, what we've created is this highly novel and unique way for two people to have a conversation continuously but to, to do that when it's convenient for each of them uh, and convenience means time and it also means location so so we don't have to connect at the exact same time we can do that at different times but we'll, we'll still do it in a way that's personal enough that we feel that we've exchanged meaningful information. So that's, that's where the, the asynchronous video comes in as well. So I think that we've just, we've just created a mechanism for communication between two people, which exchanges really, really, really important information about um, the patient's health and allows the provider to address it in a calm, measured manner at their convenience.
3: Yeah, I, I, lo- I just love the idea of a normalized doctor-patient relationship through telemedicine. And it is really something that, again, with my weird crow's nest perch, has not quite formally penetrated the U.S. market psyche. And I conflate that with how no one really wanted to use PayPal for 20 years because they didn't trust it. But do you feel that pandemic has forced upon us a need to adopt and accept this and I guess to that, will we see an uptick in, um, I'll almost say a, a cultural acceptance that this is just a better way to live your life with a higher quality?
2: Well, I'll, this is Bob again, I'll let Sebastian add to this, but I I, I think as, a, as we're certainly seeing that um, COVID is, is tra- as we've mentioned, transforming, I think, um, for the long term, um, our emphasis on remote monitoring. But I think um, even before this, and, and certainly even now, a key issue is going to be the security and confidence that both patients and providers have, um, that this confidential health information that's exchanged in a very efficient way on platforms like EMOCA remains confidential, right? And they're, they're, and that's a really, really important thing, and certainly something, you know, since we started this with a, a remote HIV uh, care uh, program in, in rural Uganda, security and confidentiality has always been really really important and continues to be and i think that'll continue to be something that needs to be addressed to um, assure uh, people that uh, using systems like this um, are safe and secure for them and improve their confidence and and ability to use them
3: yeah hopefully it only only took x years to believe you could buy something online with your credit card and not get ripped off hopefully this will happen a little more expediently in our culture
0: yeah i think that the uh the fact of the matter is that what we will learn here is that people, once they try something, get used to certain ways of communicating. In the same way that we might fluidly switch between a text message and a phone call, and a you know, and a video call, or um, you know, other other means, we're, we're used to that as consumers. And the healthcare consumer has not yet figured out that that's convenient, and the healthcare provider has not yet made it entirely convenient. Um, and and those things will change by force. Because they have to right now, because patients really still need care as urgently as they did before and, and will need to access it even if they can't come in.
3: I think that's fair. Uh, rounding out the, the the conversation, I did want to focus on COVID. And, and both of you, feel free to tell me you're not an epidemiologist or a virologist. But I, I have a couple of questions because I was asymptomatically positive for antibodies. I got retested. I, have, I My uncle is like a world renowned geneticist, and he's been protecting me my whole life. And a basic question is, how long, and this might be a skewed question, how long does it take to prove immunity after antibodies?
2: Sebastian, unless you want to be a virologist for the day, I'm (laughs) happy to take take this one. Well, look, you know, this is a um, uh, complicated and important question that a lot of people are asking these days, of course. Um, You know, the first thing to, to remember is that Antibody is is not uh, when we measure antibody with a blood test like this, we're not necessarily measuring just one antibody. We're we're often, depending on the test, could be measuring a whole cocktail, if you will, of antibodies that people make against this virus and other viruses. So um, to interpret the results of a test like this, you really have to understand the specifics of what test was used and what it's actually measuring, which type of antibody is actually measuring, and um, and so. Uh, that can have a big impact on, for example, how long um, a test might stay positive, a particular antibody test may stay positive. And, and, of course, since we've only been dealing with this epidemic in the United States for about four months, we don't have data beyond that to know uh, how long it persists. But, um, but we're certainly seeing people develop antibody re- responses using a variety of different tests. Usually within the first week to two weeks, certainly after two to three weeks of symptoms, in a large majority, most people uh, using most of the tests that are being used. Um, but we don't yet know whether that, in, that uh, antibody presence means immunity. Um, Why that does it necessarily protect you from a second infection, or reduce the risk of that second infection? If you do get it, could be less severe, which is another thing that might uh, might actually uh, might actually happen. We know from other, you know, this is not the first coronavirus that's infected humans. This is the seventh or eighth. We've had four others for many hundreds of years that cause a common cold. And we know that you can get reinfected with those on average every couple of years. And so with other coronaviruses, there's not a um, a lifelong immunity for most people. So we yet don't know whether that's going to be true for this, this one as well. Um, I, I'm actually thinking we're going to learn a lot about this in the next few months uh, when we see how um, these new studies are going to uh, result uh, that are looking at convalescent plasma, where you basically are taking antibodies from people like yourself who have recovered and you're giving it to people who either are at risk, may have been exposed or sick with the disease. And you see what happens. And, and let's, let's see, uh, let's suppose that uh, giving people those antibodies, actually has a positive effect. uh, Let's suppose we find out that it prevents infection in health workers or or household contacts who who might receive it. Well, that would be really helpful because then it tells us that having antibodies um, does some good and may be protective. Um, And that would really reassure us that the the tests that we're using now to measure antibodies have some real practical value as far as immunity is concerned uh, moving forward. How long it's going to last, I think uh, we just have to wait and see. Um, I'm not sure if that's uh, answered your question or not, but uh, uh, let's see. Maybe the, the virologist, Sebastian, wants to add more to that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not
3: sure. Dr. Sebastian, yeah. please.
2: Uh, well, look, I like
0: to stay in my lane, and um, I've been counseled by uh, Dr. Bollinger and several several other experts that um, it doesn't really matter from our point of view whether somebody— has tested positive or tested negative, or their antibody measurements are are a certain value, Uh, we care about symptoms and whether somebody is experiencing those symptoms and how long they've been experiencing symptoms, Um, because so much else is is unknown. And so for the moment, uh, those facts are are very, very important in terms of whether that person isolates um, or is able to return to work, return to school, um, and be in the presence of others who they may may be a, a danger to. Did I get that one right, Bob?
2: Yeah, I think you did. Um, I, you know, Just to, to put a, a final point on that, I think the, uh, the test that, that matters in those scenarios is, is the PCR, the nucleic acid test, um, that, that we've heard a lot about. and that Because the antibody test doesn't tell us whether or not someone is infectious uh, to others or actually is sick with that disease necessarily. Um, and so the, the we rely primarily on the other type of test for that purposes, um, and also to help us decide whether someone might be infectious to others and, and whether it's safe for them to return to work, for example. That's not something we can, at this point, uh, confidently say based on an antibody test.
3: Right. I was PCR negative and IgG positive twice with the same test because I wanted to rule out because my wife and kids were negative, and that just seems largely improbable. And I'm working on that Scooby-Doo mystery, talking to as many experts such as yourselves as possible?
2: Well, I, you know, um, it, it probably depends on what type of test that you had. I mean, there are some tests that are positive and, and what we call false positives, and that means that the antibody that they measure are antibodies that could be from this particular coronavirus or perhaps also cross-react with other coronaviruses that we might have had an infection from uh, earlier in our lives. But uh, we're learning more and more. These tests are getting evaluated very carefully now on. So, um, uh, and, and certainly it could be very well possible that uh, you were exposed and had a relatively uh, asymptomatic uh, infection, and, and thank goodness, um, uh, and now we're uh, mounting an immune response. I, I, you know, I think um, if you were infected, uh, I'm glad that it was a very mild uh, or asymptomatic case.
3: Well, surely a conversation that has no end point in sight. I want to congratulate you both on adopting a new precedent and recognizing the doctor-patient relationship as it comes to the human side of compliance and adherence. I want to wish you all the best with EMOCA. And you're on to something really important that I think is really going to make a difference in, in this country and clearly around the world. Bob Bollinger is the director of the Center for Clinical Global Health Education at Johns Hopkins Medicine. And Sebastian Sager is the co-founder and CEO of eMoCA. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on this show.
4: Thank you for having us. The Johns Hopkins University has a financial interest in eMoCA, a technology that was invented at the Johns Hopkins University. This financial interest includes equity in the company and entitlement to royalties. Dr. Bollinger is an inventor of the technology, and he has equity and a royalty interest in Emoca. He is a member of the Emoka Board of Directors and is a consultant to the company. These conflicts of interest are being managed by the university in accordance with its conflict of interest policies. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media.